it was her most cherished jewel. I just get sort of um, rather excited by the fact that I'm on the very spot. It's the only one of Fabergé's eggs that looks like an egg. I love this fact they sort of stop for lunch halfway through the rebellion. Nobody talks about Pharaoh's pants very often, and uh, but they're there. He actually reaches down into the guy's throat and gets the diamond back. Welcome to History Gems, and today we're going to be going back to 6th century France to uncover the secrets of a queen's grave. Here to guide us is the brilliant Dr Elizabeth Norton, who has a particular interest and specialism in queenship, and has also studied both archaeology and anthropology. It gives you a real sense of how wealthy this woman is. There's no doubt at all that this is a really, really wealthy woman. And with far-reaching contacts, because, you know, she was able to acquire these fine Byzantium. But of course, we're interested in the jewellery. And, I mean, no upper-class early medieval woman would be buried without rich, rich jewellery. On the skeleton's thumb, they found a ring made of gold, which is inscribed with the word Arnagundis around a central monogram, which um, says Regina, Queen. So, I mean, it's clearly a ring that belonged to Queen Arnagunda. There's no doubt about that. You know, Arnagunda's queen, and we know who Arnagunda was. Elizabeth is the author of many books, including biographies of four of Henry VIII's wives, also England's Queens, the biography, and more recently, the hugely successful The Lives of Tudor Women. Elizabeth is a regular contributor on both television and radio, so you may well be familiar with her already. Hi Beth, and welcome to History Gems. Hi Nicola, thanks for having me. It's a huge pleasure, and I think it's really, really important to acknowledge the fact that you've got lots and lots of different hats. So you are a really well-respected historian who's written many books about many areas of history. Um, You're also a lecturer and you lead historical tours. You've also completed a doctorate and you've also studied archaeology. And I think maybe there are some listeners who may not realise that you have also studied archaeology. So perhaps you could start by telling us a little bit about that and how you became interested. So, yeah, no, so I did study archaeology. Um, My first degree at Cambridge was in archaeology and anthropology, specialising in archaeology. So I very much focused on historical periods, so up to 16th century, but also earlier so looking at the Anglo-Saxons and the migration period in Europe um did a fair bit of digging Uh, I have a cave named after me in Algeria which is pretty exciting wow Um, so that was yeah so that was good fun um and then off went I went off to Oxford and did a master's in archaeology as well there before moving over to history so yeah so I've always kind of had a foot in both camps if you like although I haven't done any digging for quite a while my goodness, but that's amazing. How many people can actually say that they've got a cave named after them? That's seriously very cool. It is it is quite cool. I do I do trot that one out actually fairly regularly. <laughs> <laughs> well, I never knew that. So um that's wow, <laughs> claim to fame. Um so I was gonna ask you, have you you obviously have dug in lots of interesting places. So have you have you made any fantastic and interesting finds so I had a bit of a specialism for finding cow bones 
So if there were cow bones <laughs> to be found, I probably would find them. Um, they're not terribly exciting. Oh. Although they are actually quite useful and quite interesting that you can get a sense of what people were farming, what they were eating, generally cows, to be honest. Um, but no, I've dug some really interesting sites. So, you know, I was digging a Bronze Age tell site, which is a settlement site above the Danube in Hungary one summer. And that was really interesting. But it's kind of, you don't really expect to find the exciting things. You know, I mean, a human okay. skeleton would have been fantastic. I've never found one of those. Uh. Um, but you kind of, you know, you find post holes, you find sort of burnt remnants cremations if you're lucky food remains kind of you know if you think about the detritus from your own life so sort of the rubbish that you kind of it's often the rubbish you know it's the things that people left behind when their house was abandoned or their settlement was abandoned so what you're really looking through when you're an archaeologist particularly if you're doing settlement sites is you're looking for the rubbish mm. the food waste anything that kind of gives you a sense of how they lived because actually of course the valuables people took with them if they could yeah, of course. Of course. Uh, yeah, that makes perfect sense, actually. Wow, that was, it does sound really fascinating. Um, now, today we're going to be talking about a queen, and I'm not sure that I'm going to pronounce her name right, so perhaps I'll start with that. So to me, it sounds like Arnigund? It's Arnigunda. Arnigunda. Okay. Okay, thank you for that. So we're talking about Queen Arnigunda today, which may not be a familiar name to lots of listeners because it, it wasn't to me um so perhaps could you tell us a little bit about her like who she was and why she's important so I mean Arnagunda she's an incredibly early queen um a long way from my sort of usual specialism in the 16th century or medieval queens but her story always struck me I, I first learned about her when I was at Cambridge um we were looking at sort of fifth century sixth century and Arnagunda came up and it's just a really fascinating story and it's always really stuck with me so that's why I wanted to talk to you about Arnagunda today um she is a Merovingian queen so a queen of the Franks she was married to King Clothair who was a king of the Franks in the very late fifth century and mainly in the sixth century um She's a Merovingian queen. So the Merovingians are the first dynasty in France, if you like, sort of post-Roman period. Um, they are famously known as the long-haired kings because okay. although most Franks wore their hair short, the kings had long hair and it was a sign of their royalty. Oh. To cut a Merovingian king's hair was to effectively bar them from the throne. So it's a bit like in Byzantium. If they wanted to bar a member of the dynasty from becoming emperor, they would blind them or do something horrible to them. With the Franks, it wasn't quite so bad. They would chop their hair off. And if you were tonsured or your hair was cut, you could no longer be a Merovingian king. You simply, you were no longer royal, effectively. So this is the dynasty we're talking about. And it's, I mean, it's really, really early. It's the dynasty of King Clovis. It's, um, I mean, the dynasty claimed descent from a sea monster, um, Merovec, the first king who's sort of semi-legendary, was supposedly the son of a, a sea monster conceived when his mother went swimming in a lake. Um, so this is how early we're talking about. And it's a really confusing period, lots of names, lots of different queens. Yeah. Um, but Arnagunda is the one that really sort of stands out to me. And it's because of what we know about her grave or possibly her grave. Okay, so... Um... 
I think I'm right in saying that when she died in, is it 580 that she died? Um, so we don't massively know Arnagunda's dates because she's so early. We know that she would have been born in around the five teens or early 520s. Um, her son, King Chilperic I, was born in around 539. So that kind of dates when Arnagunda was born. So she was probably born in around 515, 520. And the date of death is very much taken from a grave that is believed to be hers. And this grave dates to around 580, 590. Oh, okay. And I, I think then that that grave is, is it in the Basilica of Saint-Denis in Paris? Is that right? That is. So um, in the 1950s, so there's a necropolis under the Basilica of Saint-Denis. So Saint-Denis is, is, I'm sure you know, very, very early. It was yeah. a burial place of the kings of France from the time of Queen Arnagunda's um descendants in the 7th century um so from the 10th century to the 18th century almost all kings of France were buried in Saint-Denis um but it's there much much earlier um the church was there it was an important place of pilgrimage an important place in the royal dynasty and in the 50s the necropolis under the basilica was dug by archaeologists and they discovered many many burials of course it was a very early cemetery mm. but the most sort of famous most well-known graves that they discovered was inside a stone sarcophagus and inside that sarcophagus was the skeleton of a woman with very rich grave goods and this is the grave that is believed to be Arnagunda's. Okay and I think didn't they I read this somewhere that didn't they also find in this grave that um this is slightly maybe a bit gory and not related to jewelry at this point but didn't they also find that one of the lungs was really well preserved they did they did so yes um the woman in the grave is almost entirely skeletal apart from one lung which is effectively mummified um which is weird, yeah. to be honest. Um, not many people attempt to mummify a lung. Um, it looks very much, and the lung has been analysed and the body's been analysed in fairly recent years, and it looks very much as though partly accidental and partly a, an attempt at mummification that's gone wrong. So it looks like a kind of fairly rudimentary attempt was made to embalm her body. So she was given some sort of herbs and spices after death to try and preserve the body. And these seem to have pooled in the lung. So we found trace, they found traces of those in the lung. At the same time, Arnagunda was buried wearing a copper belt and there are big traces of copper in the lung. And that seems to have also have contributed to the preservation of this one lung. So the mummification, the embalming didn't really work, but it did work on her lung. Wow. <laughs> I think that's just an incredible story. I don't think I've ever heard anything like that. So It's baffling. It's baffling. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, the, sarc- the sarcophagus or the grave contained, as you mentioned, lots of really rich grave goods, including jewels. So do we know much about these at all? What was found in there with her? Yeah, so it's a, I mean, it's a really rich um, suite of grave goods, which is great. And you can go and see these in, well, once lockdown is over, you can go and see these in the Musée d'Archéologie Nationale just outside Paris. Ah. So they're available to to view. Um, Fascinating. So we had fragments of clothing, which is great. So she was 
dressed in a sort of reddish brown silk from Byzantium, so incredibly expensive. Wow. And uh, her tunic was embroidered with gold thread, so again, really, really rich. Um, she had a violet, violet silk tunic, red shoes with buckles and straps, um, and also she was wearing a red and yellow silk veil. Before, over the top of all this, she was wrapped in a hemp cloth or maybe a shroud. So really, really rich clothing. And obviously only fragments survive mm. because, you know, of course, of course they do. Fabric is one of the first things to go. But it gives you a real sense of how wealthy this woman is. There's no doubt at all that this is a really, really wealthy woman. And with far-reaching contacts because, you know, she was able to acquire these fine Byzantium items. But of course, we're interested in the jewellery and I mean, no upper class early medieval woman would be buried without rich, rich jewellery. And Arnagunda, if this is Arnagunda, is no exception. So she had a wide range of jewellery. In the period, you don't get sort of buttons or, you know, clothes don't tend to be stitched together. So everyone Mm. would have their tunics and their capes and their... Um, all their clothes attached with brooches. So brooches are really characteristic of this period. And we can see that Arnagunda's tunic was fastened with two round fibula brooches. So these are large round brooches. They're really characteristic of the period. And what's what's really interesting is they are made of garnet cloisonne. So cloisonne work, garnet cloisonne work particularly, is again incredibly characteristic of this very, very early medieval period. And um, you probably know what cloisonne is. If not, it's when you think about sort of really early medieval Anglo-Saxon or earlier jewellery, you often get sort of its gold, it's a gold piece of jewellery and is set with precious stones. So for example, the Alfred jewel in the Ashmolean Museum a few centuries later than Anagunda, but that has cloisonne work. Or the Sutton Hoo treasure, particularly, which isn't actually that much later than this grave. And that also has large pieces of cloisonne work. And it's basically where you create sort of gold wire cages to hold the jewels in place. So they're very, very tightly packed into these jewels. And you can make pictures and patterns. In Byzantium, they would make icons. Mm. And I mean, it dates back to the ancient Egyptians had cloisonne work, but it's so characteristic of Arnagunda's period. So she has this cloisonne work. What else does she have? She, um, she has other pins for holding her clothes together. Um, her leather shoes have small buckles and the strap ends, which survive, have animal motifs. She's also got earrings. And these are incredibly fashionable in, fashionable in Byzantium at the time. Oh. They're sort of sphere-shaped earrings. So again, it shows her contacts and the fact that she was able to access these, go- these goods. Absolutely. I didn't actually know that, um, that earrings were, were popular in that period. So that's very interesting. Yeah, so, I mean, she's a, she's a fashionable woman, um, clearly able to access contacts. There's one other item of jewellery which is the most important in okay. this grave. And this is, on the skeleton's thumb, they found a ring made of gold, which is inscribed with the word Arnagundis around a central monogram, which um, says Regina, Queen. So, I mean, it's clearly a ring that belonged to Queen Arnagunda. There's no doubt about that. You know, Arnagunda's queen, and we know who Arnagunda was. So that is what is used to identify the grave. Aha, that's really interesting because that was going to be my next question to you was how do we know or, you know, can we 
fairly accurately say that this skeleton was Arnagunde. So that ring surely is quite a crucial piece in helping to confirm that identification, isn't it? It, it is. It's crucial in giving us the identification. It doesn't necessarily mean that it is Arnagunda, though, and that's always the caveat with this grave, this rich, rich grave. We know it's a rich woman, most likely a royal woman. It's probably Arnagunda, but it might not be. And the reason for that is because, yes, the the dead woman is buried with this ring for that belonged to Arnagunda the Queen, mm. but... Of course, it could have been passed down. You know, this could be a niece, this could be a daughter, this could be another relative who's got Arnagunda's ring. And we can see this in a parallel. So there is another very, very famous Merovingian royal grave, um, which belonged to King Childeric, who was a 5th century king, the grandfather of Arnagunda's husband. And his grave was discovered in the 17th century, not far from Tournai. Um, incredibly rich grave, much, much richer than Arnagunda's. I mean, it just insanely rich, the context of children, mm. the contents of children's grave. So, you know, we've got 300 gold winged, winged insects in that grave, which were the model for Napoleon's bees, which he used as a royal symbol of France and gold coins and a gold bull's head. But with King Childeric, his grave included a ring with the king's name, but name inscribed in his picture, but this was a signet ring. So it's in reverse and intended to be pressed into wax to, to seal documents. So it, we can be pretty certain that Childeric's grave is Childeric's because okay. of this signet ring, because it's such a personal piece of kit, if yeah. you like. Yeah. Arnagunda's ring isn't a signet ring. It's a ring with her name on it. So there will always be a question mark over whether or not this actually is Arnagunda, particularly given the fact that the grave dates to around 580 to 590 and it's dated based on the clothing items in the in the grave you know based on the fashions so it's it's quite a loose identification quite a loose dating but yeah. for it to be Arnagunda she must have been around 70 to 80 years old so that is quite old for the sixth century wow yeah that's that's ancient <laughs> that is ancient venerable venerable so it's possible um, we know of other Frankish queens, at least one other Frankish queen who lived into her 70s. So it is possible, okay. but there is the question mark over whether or not this is Arnagunda's grave. It's called Arnagunda's grave. It seems to be someone who at very least had a personal connection with her. It seems to be an older woman. Um, we can see signs of arthritis on the skeleton. Um, mm. So definitely an older woman. Yeah. But there is a question mark over whether or not it's Arnagunda. I'd like to think that it is. And it, it may well be. She's the most likely candidate, but we can't be certain. Are there any other likely candidates for the identity of the skeleton? So, I mean, the Merovingian kings tended to be polygamous. Um, Arnagunda's husband certainly was. He had six wives. Oh, wow. One of them was, in fact, Arnagunda's own sister. Oh. So he was married to her sister, and according to the legend, her sister said, um, "Can you find my husband? My sis can you find my sister an honourable husband, someone who will befit our rank?" And so Clotha went and had a look at Arnagunda, and then came back to his wife and said, "Yep, found her a husband. I've married her." <laughs> As you do. Yeah. So, I mean, he had several wives all at the same time. Um, I mean, most famously, he was married to Saint Radigund 
who is buried in Poitiers. She is um, quite quite well known in England, actually, surprisingly. Um, I actually once tweeted a photo of St. Radigan's grave and I mean, it went a bit viral because ah. people were quite excited about St. Radigan. Um, she's quite important in Cambridge. One of the colleges is dedicated to her and there's a, sort of a pub called St. Radigan's, but she was also married to Clothair. So he had lots of wives. So the Merovingians had a lot of queens. The Frankish kingdoms were often divided between sons as well. So the four sons of Clovis, one of whom was was Clother, they each inherited a portion of the kingdom. Um, it then sometimes goes back into one bigger entity and then divides up into smaller ones. So there are lots of queens about. So if the body is not Arnagunda, there are many, many candidates it could be. But the most likely identification is Arnagunda. Gosh, that's absolutely fascinating. I had no idea about any of this. So this is um, this is just, I'm in my element here. It's brilliant. <laughs> um, what I wanted to know also is, um, is it normal, or sorry, was it normal to be buried with this amount of finery in this period, regardless of whether you're um, a queen or a, a high-ranking noblewoman? Yes, yes. So you grave goods are a really important way for early medieval archaeologists to to learn about the people they're studying. So very much so. Um, In general, Christians were not very keen on grave goods in later periods. Um, I mean, obviously, you'll know that from sort of medieval, later medieval Tudor periods. Um, So you tend to get fewer grave goods. Um, Arnagunda, her husband, they're Christians, but they're still very much in sort of pre-Christian traditions. So actually their their graves tend to be loaded with grave goods. Um, I mean, the best example from England, you can see, which dates to around the same time of about 50 years later or so, is the Sutton Hoo burial. And that's obviously very, very famous. Um, Possibly King Redwald of of East Anglia, but again, we're not sure. Um, Dates to the sort of early to middle 7th century but that is absolutely full of grave goods and obviously you can see those at the British Museum you've got the Sutton Hoo helmet you've got um, a sort of slightly strange rod that might be a scepter um, got drinking vessels got jewellery belt buckles shield bosses swords so a huge amount of grave goods and of course the occupant of the Sutton Hoo burial was buried in a ship yeah. so very very detailed so you do get grave goods, particularly for wealthy members of society. And they're, they're generally pretty gender specific. They're, they're generally pretty gender specific. So you get generally weapons for men and brooches generally for women, although men also have pins and brooches to hold their clothes together. Um, you also get sort of more unusual grave goods. There's something that gets called a crystal ball that often appears in women's graves. Um, it's kind of in sort of a small round crystal, basically. Oh. No one's quite sure what they're for, but they're quite common. Um, so you get, you do get these sort of quite gendered graves, although there are some specific burials that do buck the trend. And actually, you know, they, they occasionally come up in graves that look very much like a warrior. And when they look at the skeleton and discover it's actually a woman. So yeah. you can't be totally sure based on grave goods. But they are often very, very lavish. And are the pieces or are the items that people are um, are buried with or were buried with, are these likely to have been personal or special pieces that were owned by them or were they something that was just thrown in for good measure? 
So it's always difficult to tell, of course, because we're in, I mean, it's known as the Dark Ages for good reason. So we don't have that many records. But I mean, I like to think they're most likely personal to them. And they do seem to be, I mean, you know, for example, going back to Childeric with his signet ring. I mean, that's obviously an item very, very personal to Childeric. Mm. Um, Arnagunda with the ring. I mean, it, you know, if it is Arnagunda, that's obviously yeah. an important ring to her. If it's a member of her family, you know, they've chosen to be buried with a ring with her name on it, which sort of suggests a close relationship and a fondness. Yeah. I mean, the goods that we find in these high status burials are too precious simply to sort of been bunged in because you wanted to put something something in really I mean it's obvious that they're important to the occupant or at least to the status of the occupant because they're they're really really rich and expensive goods you know you wouldn't really want to bury these they're things people would want to pass down through the family so the fact that they are buried with the occupant sort of suggests that they're personal to them and they felt that they need them either to reflect their status or you know perhaps for the afterlife yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Because I, I was thinking as well that if they were particularly high value, that that's perhaps something that um, even if the um, the person in question had wished to be buried with it, that perhaps their descendants may not be quite so keen um, if it was something of high value. So that's quite interesting. And presumably, you mentioned the fact that in the case of what may well be Arnagunde, the pieces that were taken from her grave can still be seen and presumably that's the same with the sarcophagus presumably visitors to Saint Denis today can still see that sarcophagus can they? Yes I believe so um I believe you can so they they uncovered quite a few burials because it was a really important early cemetery um it was a place of pilgrimage because obviously Saint Denis was one of the patron saints of France from an early period and um, a missionary to the Franks so really important and people wanted to be associated with him but yes I believe you can still see her sarcophagus you can certainly see some of the burials absolutely fascinating it's been like I said it has been really really fascinating particularly for me because I don't know anything at all about this period and I've been hanging on your every word whilst whilst you've been talking about this it's really interesting and I feel like I need to go off and find out even more about it um so thank you are you able to tell us anything about what you're working on at the moment so yeah no I've got a number of ideas so it's all a bit sort of up in the air but I will hopefully be still very early stages so I guess no not really but I'm (laughs) I'm I've got ideas it will be early modern again because this is going back all the way into the deeper medieval period it's been really fun and I always like reading about it, but it's I'm very much my heart lies in the early modern period. So in terms of it, so this is you're thinking about ideas for a new book at the moment. Yes. Right. Brilliant. And finally, for those listeners who would like to find out more about you and your work, how can they connect with you? Twitter's the best. I'm on Twitter quite a lot. I love saying hi. So come along and say hi to me and chat with me because it's, it's always good fun. So I am E. Norton History. Elizabeth Norton was taken so I'm E. Norton History. Fantastic well thank you so much for joining me today Beth it has been absolutely brilliant and I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. Yeah thank you very much for having me it's been really good fun Um, I've enjoyed it thank you and it's a great podcast. Thanks so much for joining me for another episode of History Gems. 
If you enjoyed today's episode, please press subscribe and leave us a rating and review. We'll also be posting pictures of some of the things discussed in today's episode on our social media platforms at History Gems Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Don't forget to tune in for the next episode of History Gems. <laughs>